Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week features Ken Monshine. Ken is a medievalist, which of course is nothing new to this podcast. But what is new is that he specializes in medieval warfare. You might have seen his book, Game of Thrones and the Medieval Art of War. I've learned so much by talking with Ken. And so I wanted to bring him on for this chapter because in this chapter, Danny and Jorah discuss the prospects for war of the Dothraki in Westeros. And Steve and I cover Mockingbird. This is Lysa Arryn's famous farewell through the Moondor. And in keeping with the Moondor theme, I will also feature an excerpt of my conversation with Caroline Larrington, who's recently been doing research on the inspiration behind the Moondor. Without further ado, here is Dr. Ken Monshine. Ken, talk a little bit about your book. I'm sure that listeners will want to pick it up, and so they'll want to know the title and what it's about and how to buy it. Uh, Game of Thrones and the Medieval Art of War. So it, it goes bit by bit, and it analyzes all these details of, of warfare and, by extension, history in general, right? Because warfare is uh, sort of a microcosm of medieval society. So I go from arms and armor to... Uh, siege warfare and uh, knighthood, women in warfare and mm -hmm. atrocities and things like that, and also uh, quite a bit on economics. And I kind of do a compare and contrast of Martin's world with the actual European Middle Ages, but I, I kind of do more than that in some ways because I look for inconsistencies in Martin's book. I say, well, if okay, is this really a mistake or how using actual medieval history can I reconcile seeming mistakes, errors, missteps, etc. in Martin's work with other things. So like, for instance, I, I explain the fluctuating prices of horses and food between the books and the, the, the um, Dunkin' Egg stories hmm. um, by explaining the economics of, uh, of winter in Westeros. And actually, everything makes sense if you think about it. And George R.R. Martin actually has a very deep plan that people don't realize. He just doesn't say it. Hmm. Um, this chapter was really, it really sort of showed me more so than anything else in this book that Danny is so much more savvy than her brother. Danny is, she's smarter. She's culturally intelligent. She can, she notices that here these Dothraki warriors are insulting her brother, shaming her brother calling him cart king. Uh, you know, he can't even ride. He has to sit in a cart. And Viserys is blind to this whole thing, maybe because of his own ego or whatever. But I feel like at this point, Danny has become as far exceeded her brother as sort of a political strategist. 
Yeah, absolutely. Right. She is playing real politics. She's culturally sensitive. She's adapting to what's going on. She is also for the first time in her life. Right. She is. She's really feeling a sense of her own power. She's being respected by these people. Right. She's respected. Mm-hmm. You know, Carl Drogo in the books is far kinder to her. The, but, you know, she 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 has a man who uh, is, is powerful and who could protect her. Right. For the first time in her life, she feels safe and protected and loved. And it really lets her blossom as as a person. And so she gets, you know, and, and she's like, I don't have to put up with this guy anymore. Right. This guy, this guy, he she sees mm-hmm. him as small, abusive. And she loses what little, you know, what before she kind of respected him and loved him, but also feared him. And now she realizes that he's not a person worthy of respect. Um, and she she has no reason to be afraid of him. In fact, she's more afraid that he's going to be killed and she doesn't want that on her conscience. Yeah, right. And I think for the first time, she hasn't said it to anyone else, but she has resolved to put her child on the Iron Throne. And at this point, it's not like her dream. It's a dream she has for her son. But this chapter shows that that's actually what she's designing. And and Viserys is an afterthought. You know, she wants to mend fences with him. She wants there to be a good relationship. She doesn't want him to be shamed. But I really think that she's thinking this guy is too much of a sniveling idiot to be on any throne. And I'm going to sort of play his game for a little while. But ultimately, it's not going to be him on the throne. It's going to be my child on the throne. And she makes it, I think that she makes it very clear with her inner thoughts. In yeah. This chapter. And then ultimately, this turns to, you know, there's a disaster when Drogo dies. And this turns to, you know, vengeance and, 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 and nihilism, too. Right. It's kind of a little tragic because we could see the Danny who could have been. And we're kind of we kind of mourn right. her, right? We always want to see her kind of come back to herself. Yeah, I think I have a different take on this. I think the more she comes back to herself, the more she feels like a dragon. You know, when she dreams of home, it's not dreaming of like Illyrio's house. When she's dreaming of home, she's dreaming of a place that she doesn't remember. So she's dreaming of conquering Westeros, and so the more she sort of comes into her own the more she's acting like this Targaryen conqueror. But it's all well-earned, you know? It's all like, of course that's better than the life she's been living. So we want that for her, even though we know what that will mean. You know, it probably means the deaths of tens of thousands of people. But we love Danny, so we're willing to sort of entertain that Which possibility. Which why one way that, you know, Martin works, right? He makes it seem sympathetic, right? He makes essentially what isn't, you know... Yeah. It, an act of raw power, ambition, evil, even to be yeah. seem like a moral, just, and, and sympathetic thing, right? Mm-hmm. We look at, at at her here, and she is an incredibly sympathetic figure. She, yeah. but she, you know, she's fair, she's good, she's kind. You know, she wants to be good to Viserys, though he doesn't in any way deserve it, and she wants good things, not even for herself, but for other people. That's right. Let me read this chapter. I mean, let me read my synopsis of this chapter. All right, so here's my synopsis. Daenerys is riding her silver into Vise Dothrak along with the Kalasar. She observes that Viserys is shamed and ridiculed by Drogo and his warriors. Even Jorah mocks the would-be king of Westeros. As they ride, Danny and Jorah talk over the different approaches to warfare by contrasting 
Westerosi Knights and Dothraki riders, she now imagines that her son will one day set the Iron Throne, but still wants to mend fences with her brother. After bidding farewell to Drogo and settling in, she sends word to Viserys to invite him to supper. Danny has planned to provide food from the market and give him the gift of new clothing. Viserys takes the gesture entirely as an insult, assaults Doria, grips Danny's arms violently, and berates her. Danny strikes back at his face with a bronze belt. Viserys bleeds, threatens her again, and leaves. Danny skips supper and consoles herself by caressing a dragon egg and talking to the sun in her womb. So, Ken Monshine, uh, would you like to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall you and I just climb the ladder of chaos? Well, what, there's a few things that, I mean, there's a lot going on in this chapter. Yeah. Right? I really dig this chapter. I've always done this chapter because it's such a great character piece for Danny and such um, an integral part of her character development. Um, and we feel bad for her and we're glad we're rooting for her because she's starting to assert herself against her obviously violent, insane, toxic brother. Mm-hmm. And that's great. And, you know, so she tries to do the right thing. She's adapted well to her situation. She has learned to speak Dothraki fluently. She, um, has learned to ride. And of course, Viserys, you know, this is where Viserys, you know, utterly ceases to be anyone who is going to be we have any any sympathy for in sense of his richly deserved downfall yeah it's it's just a wonderful character piece but also we get to know jara better but martin also gets to nerd out in his <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the military warfare with the contrast of dothraki and westerosi fighting techniques yes now of course the dothraki are the sort of uh combination of the mongols and any you know you know, Central Asian steppes cultures with maybe yeah. some American mixed in. And they're very much a combination of the noble savage plus Conan the Barbarian, right? This idea. Yeah, he's a- kind of, Drogo's kind of a tale of the Hun. And and you do get, because we're seeing this from a Westerosi perspective, you know, Danny's perspective, and we're getting, we're hearing Jorah and Viserys' commentary, all of this sort of racial stereotypes projected on the Mongols we see projected on the Dothraki. But more than that, right? They're just uh, irredeemably violent, right? That that violence is such a part of their, that that it's, it's, it's a fantasy of violence where men are men and they're, they're going to uh, avenge insults instantly with steel. And mm-hmm. they just exist to plunder and, and kill, right? They're entirely a force of destruction. There's nothing constructive or cooperative in their their culture it's basically uh they basically you know they're they're basically like cops of the world so uh it's mm-hmm. it's sort of uh it's uh you know it's uh, a stallion that mounts the world yeah it's it's they, they live in a hobbesian state right and mm-hmm. and i think that that's not just your westeros guys i think martin writes that so that's interesting but what, what is realistic or interesting is what martin writes about their fighting techniques and this idea well yes they could take an army of Westerosi knights in the field, or just say a Westerosi, Westerosi army of mixed arms would be more, you know, more accurate as would be for the Middle Ages. And this drawer also points out. But of course, as Martin well knows, medieval warfare was not field, you know, open field battles like the TV show, like the show, 
like to like to show us, right? They like to show us these open field battles. And uh, movies love to do that because siege warfare is boring. But medieval warfare was siege warfare. Medieval warfare was primarily about castles and fortified mm-hmm. towns and other strong points. And it's not for nothing, of course, that Tolkien, you know, Helm's Deep, you know, Minas Tirith, right? Everything is about taking strongholds and strong points. Um, and it is it is essentially very hard to storm a castle. If you've ever seen been to a, a decent sized medieval castle, the things are wicked intimidating. And yeah, and a lot of times they're built like on the side of a cliff and so you can only attack from really one angle, and then that angle, of course, is going to be... I mean, Jorah points this out. Jorah really basically says, well, if they came to Westeros, you know, if they ever crossed the Narrow Sea, you could pull up in a castle, and there's just kind of nothing they could do against a castle. Although, we do see that the Dothraki are marauding around and getting tribute from all kinds of walled cities... Because the people in the walled cities just don't want to fight. They would rather pay the, the tribute. So I'm wondering, do, what what is your take on this? I mean, Jorah has a particular take on how you would actually fight against the Dothraki in Westeros. What does Ken Monshine think about this? Uh, Ken Monshine uh, thinks Jorah is not wrong. But, of course, the Mongols, very quickly from the peoples they had, they had conquered and subjugated, learn siege warfare and they learn to make siege machinery and of course they would learn to take castles and strongholds or starve them out right mm, um, mm-hmm. you know they can live off the land etc um if we look at history right first thing they the, the mongols the actual mongols were not utterly invulnerable in the field they were um defeated by the austrians on a couple of occasions at least expeditionary forces were but for the most part they they did indeed fare very very well against european style armies in the eastern reaches of the uh the german german speaking lands the holy roman empire whatever you want to call it and in china and in other places they were able to take fortified cities they were you know they were not unlucky against that but they did devastate hungary like they they massacred like a large part of the population of hungary um and they were you know very effective going into into poland and they only really stopped i mean the guy as far as as, as essentially the outskirts of vienna and even though initial forays and raiding parties were uh because they they like many other like everyone else in the pre-industrialized world practiced vitigian warfare right go against their go against their crops go against all of that yeah so the dothraki could have just yeah really just destroyed the land and the anyone who was in within the walls for years and years and and sort of taunt yeah. someone like Robert Baratheon to come out and face them on the field and Jorah's of the mind that yeah of course Robert's going to be be able to be taunted in that way he's uh, Robert's got too much of an ego to stand behind a siege wall for very long right and he's, you know, he's not wrong about that. I think that they would actually stand a very, very good chance of of success. In fact, it's, you know, often argued that only Ogodai's death is what caused the Mongols to withdraw uh, mm. from Europe. But, I mean, in the Holy Land, uh, Antioch was had a Mongol garrison in it. They became, you know, they swore fealty and became uh, subsidiary tributaries of of the mongols so let's suppose that you know the dothraki let's even suppose they take king's landing okay let's suppose they kill robert hypothetically 
um, mm-hmm. some alternate history. They they take you know they defeat the royal army in the field. Well, the Starks. I mean, whomever survives, right? Whomever survives from that disaster, uh, which would be you know probably quite a bit of them. And of course, you know the the Dothraki would probably be like ravaging the whole south, but. Certainly, the you know the the other kingdoms, the Lannisters, um, the Tyrells, certainly the North, they would see what the problem is, and they would be able to unite in some fashion, come up with a coherent strategy. Certainly, right? Certainly, the Dothraki would have a hard time getting up up the neck, right? The Dothraki are not a seagoing people, and an amphibious invasion of the north would be difficult. And I guess the weather is a problem, you know. You go far enough north, and I think that the weather just, it almost dictates the outcome. Um, You know, you're not used to fighting in in that kind of weather. It's going to be very difficult to survive by just going village to village and taking slaves. The the Jurassic, well, I mean, it depends if it is, it depends if it's, you know, winter, winter. In um in in Westeros, sure. certainly the Dothraki would probably not be very easily able to survive an actual northern winter. But certainly, but uh, yeah, taking the south, taking King's Landing, taking um all that, certainly that would be that would be possible. They might wind up just with a a chunk of the Seven Kingdoms. Ultimately, I think what would happen in that case is that the Dothraki would be there. Uh, they would form a sizable ethnic group and a sizable minority in Westeros. And I think a large part is that what would happen would be a lot of like what happened in Ming China hmm. in that they assim- would assimilate. Hmm. I mean, well, first it'd be, you know, more like Yuan, you know, Mongol China. But then even after, even after the overthrow of the Yuan dynasty in the late 14th century of you know, our calendar, the, the Ming dynasty used Mongol mercenaries, overlords, guards, soldiers, uh, and they were there, and there was a sizable um, Mongol ethnic group. And of course, the Mongols also, um, you know, Kublai Khan notably um, ass- assimilated to Chinese ways of being. This is something you see over and mm-hmm. over. Um, intermarriage happens, and people become, you know, recognizable ethnic minorities. And so, even if the overlords, you know, they don't really want to see a Targaryen back on the throne. They're going to have to reach some sort of accommodation, right? They're probably going to fight themselves out. They're going to reach some sort of situation of stalemate between the Dothraki armies not really being able to take a lot of the fortified castles and cities, perhaps, you know, quite a bit of them, but also, you know, being able to defend strong points uh, with, you know, technologically advanced weapons, trebuchets, um, catapults, crossbows. So if we just use... Jorah's analogy of like the Battle of the Trident, where one side has like 40,000 men and all of them warriors. Like, let's just imagine 40,000 Dothraki warriors. And then you've got a similar size of Westerosi army, but about one in every 10 is a knight. Jorah's, Jorah's assessment is the Dothraki win in that case. And it sounds like you would probably agree with Jorah in that in order for the Westerosi to put up a fight, they really have to, they have to fight smarter. They have to fight behind walls. They have to use geography. They have to use weather. Yeah, things absolutely. Like that. They absolutely have to do that. And that's, that's the real, uh, that's the real crux of it. So introduced in this chapter are the mother of mountains, Vice Dothrak, which we learn is built by slaves. 
we learned for the first time that Drogo has a different idea about the arrangement. So in this chapter, Jorah introduced to us this concept of the Dothraki gift for gift exchange, where he sees Danny as a gift to him. And then at some point, he might choose to return a gift to Viserys. And this is much different than what Viserys thinks. Viserys thinks, well, I bought something. I the, the cost was my sister, so I paid the price. But now something is owed to me. And so we have this fundamental sort of cultural misunderstanding between Viserys and Drogo. Danny's culturally intelligent enough to sort of get this. But Viserys has no clue that he's made this misstep. And it's also a sense of his entitlement, right? He bears this tremendous grudge. Yeah. He carries around with him this, right. this poison, right? He is the quintessential white male. He is, <laughs> right? <laughs> he, that's right. He really is. He's sort of the archetypal uh, yeah. white privilege guy. So that, that's funny. Yeah, right. um, the other thing that's introduced in this chapter is the night that the Nightlands, that there's this this ritual where the blood riders of the call will sort of sort out the night, the, the calls business once he dies and then they will die with him and they will all go ride in the nightlands. That's the first time we hear about that to me. I don't think that has an analog in the medieval sort of ideology, unless I'm missing something. Um, numerous cultures sacrificed, you know, followers and uh, with, the the people um i mean certain you know the the norse apparently killed slaves to go along people in in, in death uh yeah slaves and wives but but i i mean would warriors climb on a pyre i don't know is that something that is just a blind spot for me i i don't see that not to my not to my knowledge i can remember i'm sure there must be some you know in in, in the whole yeah. diversity of the world right there must be some corresponding but it, it sure. does seem kind of cool right i mean it's pretty badass it's like we're so <laughs> devoted to this guy that we're just gonna you know maybe maybe like japanese right like like the retainers will like kill themselves right i don't know it sounds a little it, Monty it seems Python very uh, it seems maybe, maybe <laughs> like some like you know westernized idea of bushido but uh, yeah sure sure okay I we'll get, call it I, bullshito I okay so uh <laughs> Um, All right. So the differences between the book and the show here is that I think Viserys gets a lot more speaking parts. You know, he he makes commentary on the Dothraki savages a bit more in in the book than in the show. And then we get a lot more detail about Vice Dothrak. And we also get this detail that the Dothraki are calling uh, Viserys Mm. Cart King as sort of this derisive uh, shaming nickname. Call, call, right. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. We also don't forget the Dash Kaleen, um, the, the widow. I mean, that's like yes, Danny's worth there because right. then that's her being essentially returned to being nothing, right? It's not- yeah. Eventually, yeah. That's her. Fa- that's the pyre she's going to have to climb onto, you know, being irrelevant in, it's like worse than death, being irrelevant, just living her life around these crones, basically mm-hmm. a slave again. So, yeah, no, I can see that, uh, yeah, that's the choice she has. If you had a choice between conquering the world 
or being a slave your whole life, you you understand, you get it. You know, it's like I'll 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 conquer the world. I'll make it a better place once I do. You know, that temptation is you know it's it's a real factor yeah. in her development. Yeah. So that's the thing. But of course, the show also lets us. Sh- you know, actors can act right, whereas on the page you have to show through words and actions mm-hmm. what somebody's character is. But of course, you know, the actual actor can snivel. Right. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. Well, let me ask you one more question, if you don't mind. I had a listener that emailed in, and they wanted to know something about the weapons in the in the show, the weapons in the book. Are those? Did you see any weapons in the show or the book that don't have analogs in the medieval period? To what extent do the showrunners or Martin bring creativity to the weaponry? Well, swords were you know, always sidearms. So, you know, spears, polearms, those are going to always be primary. Um, you know, the, but everything is kind of based on something. Those, the, the Thraki swords are kind of like Egyptian kopeches. Um, mm-hmm. The, um, there, there's, you know, you look, you look, you'll find, you know, something strange, you know, something like that at any point. Um, nomenclature is difficult because, you know, there's, a, Martin uses a lot of antiquarian terms. Um, we, the term, I mean, people just in the Middle Ages called it a sword and they describe it. Oh, yeah, it's a short sword. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a sword you'd wear, you know, it's an arming sword, a sword, you know, sword wearing an armor or something like that. Swords would be described by, you know, length and length of handle and things like that. It's just a sword, right? They, they didn't have the sort of taxonomy of swords that's really a Victorian kind of, uh, thing right and that has gotten picked up on by you know fantasy writers and fantasy role playing so that okay a broadsword mm-hmm. is different from a long sword which is different from a blah 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 mm-hmm. these are all merely descriptives it's basically just a sword in italian right it's a spada and a rapier was a spada and a you know a two-handed sword was a um was a, a spadone which means a big sword and a, is what we call a small sword was a spadina which means a small sword right it's just mm-hmm. all just a sword it's a sword it's a big sword it's a little sword it's a medium sword it's a sword with two edges it's a sword with a point two edges and a point um yeah so he uses a lot of antiquarian terms uh that would not necessarily have been used um contemporaneously well that's helpful what about it like the uh the whole morning star business um, oh the whole the whole uh the whole, uh, you, you mean the flail thing with the, yeah. the chain? Yeah. Well, yeah. Paul, Paul Sturbison is like, yeah, they didn't really use that. And that was often um, basically just a marker of, of monstrosity or otherness that wasn't that practical, even though it's like, you know, like if you look at Ivanhoe, the, the final doing Ivan, Ivanhoe, mm-hmm. they use one of those. It's kind of become a trope. Like, oh, that's something like So you're saying the, the, a big spiky ball on a chain, you're saying that there's a mystique to it, but it's not that practical. I'd say that there's, yeah, I'd say that it was often a marker of monstrosity or otherness, right? That's okay. That wasn't something anyone, you know, in their right mind would use because you'd hit your horse. But I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I do think that maybe it, um, prong, you know, but pe- people, I mean, there are some depictions. People probably use them. Um, certainly on foot. It's a footman's weapon. Like a two-handed flail, that is a footman's weapon that was, uh, used a lot, used even into modern times. It's a tool, right? It's a for cracking the gra- heads of grain. It's basically, you know, nunchaku or basically just flails for mm. agricultural, modified agricultural tools. So yeah, it's something that was used. Hey, Ken, I appreciate I appreciate all of this. This is really fascinating stuff, and I appreciate you coming on to cover this. I think it was a really 
entertaining chapter. And it's sort of a chapter that really shows a shift in Danny's character and her key relationships as well. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, it's it's a very, very interesting chapter. It's a very good chapter, not just the military history stuff, but because it's just in general a really good piece of character development. FX is adapting James Clavell's best-selling novel, Shogun, into a 10-part miniseries this spring. Set in the Shogunate period of Japan at the turn of the 15th century, Shogun depicts the rise of a feudal lord to Shogun, as seen through the eyes of a shipwrecked English sailor. It's loosely based on the real-life exploits of William Adams and Tokugawa Ieyasu. Shogun has already been successfully adapted back in 1980 with a widely acclaimed miniseries starring Richard Chamberlain featuring intricate plots, political scheming, complex characters, and thrilling action. This time, husband and wife team Justin Marks and Rachel Kondo try to recapture the successes of the novel and early adaptations while increasing the levels of historical and cultural accuracy that are often perceived as flaws of this and similar works. Starring Hiroyuki Sanada from The Last Samurai, Mortal Kombat, and John Wick 4, with Cosmo Jarvis of Peaky Blinders, Raised by Wolves, etc., joining the truly massive cast required to bring this complex world to life. Join Aaron and I each week as we deep dive into each episode, uncovering the mysteries, the intrigue, and the glory of Shogun. Shogun premieres on FX Hulu Tuesday, February 27th at the two-part debut. Our podcast will release each Thursday thereafter. Get our Shogun coverage by searching for Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. How you doing, buddy? You, you don't know what it's like out there. Hey, man, do, do you even know what it's like out there? N- no, n- not really. I've been mostly kind of flying around in helicopters, carving likenesses of Michonne into cell phones, that kind of thing. What is it like out there? Oh, well, I think it's time to find out, man. Last I saw your wife, Michonne, was out uh, following a giant wagon train. That, that sounds pretty weird, but it seems like a family-friendly outfit. I mean, she's got RJ and Judah with her, right? Um, actually, she kind of left them to be raised by... Negan and Daryl. Well, crap. Hold on, let me get my boots. All right, well, Rick is getting ready. Aaron and I are, too. We're preparing to once again recommission The Watching Dead out of mothball status to find out what's going on with Rick and Michonne, The Ones Who Live. The six-part miniseries premieres Sunday, February 25th on AMC, and we'll be ready with our full episodic coverage each Tuesday. And afterwards, who knows? Maybe we'll check out Dead City. Find our coverage for The Ones Who Live by searching for The Watching Dead or Bald Move Pulp wherever you listen to podcasts. And now Steve and I cover Mockingbird. That's episode seven of season four. Jamie tells Tyrion that he cannot be his champion. We see the ultimate demise of Lysa Arryn. Dario and Danny hook up. Oberyn Martell, in dramatic fashion, proclaims that he will be Tyrion's champion. And most exciting of all, we have a return of one hot pie. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Steve, we're covering... Episode 7 of Season 4. This is called Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. Mockingbird is Littlefinger's sigil. Yeah. So, should we talk about Littlefinger? If we must. 
Because this this episode ends quite dramatically. Little finger, big footprint. Little finger, big footprint. I mean, Little Finger has a lot of play in this. He's he's making a lot of moves. He's making yeah. moves on Sansa. He's basically taken the veil. I mean, he's he's married. He married Lysa. Then he kills Lysa. Yeah. De facto, he's Lord of the Veil now. Right. But that wasn't enough. He had to confess to Lysa right before he pushes her out the moon door. <laughs> give you something to think about on the journey down. That he's always loved her sister more. Not not just more, that she's the only person he's ever loved. Right. He didn't have to say that. Nope. I mean, if your intent is to push somebody out the moon door. I guess maybe it was for maybe it was for Sansa's benefit. Like Perhaps, just, right. Just so you know, this is all for your mother. It's all for your mother. Also, if you cross me, it's it, it gets worse. Jeez. So this is his big play. I mean, he's he's taken big strides, big swings, big swings by Littlefinger. We got to see more Robin. Certainly, man. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's a little precious. Now I will say this: like clearly, Littlefinger is a horrible person, right? But if you had the choice to be ruled by Littlefinger, Lysa, or Robin, yeah, I mean, at least Littlefinger is competent. Well, and you, and like even though you can't really trust him, you could probably at least be like, "Look, I, I feel like we could we could work something out." You know, Robin's just like, "I just want to push people and make them five. If they, if they don't like me, or they cross me." <laughs> it's just a little. It's that just. Uh, that was it. Was a great scene between him and Sansa. Sansa's. I think you really kind of needed that little scene with her building. Winter fell out of snow. It it definitely, I think, helped remind us of a certain youthfulness, right? Yeah, she she is a, she's still a kid. She's yeah. still a kid. You know the, what? Just to remind to remind everyone what she's lost, and you know to her say like, I'm probably never going to go there again. Uh, someone else took it and burned it down, and this is this is all I have left in the world. This little snow thing that I've made. And then I just have have Robin bumble over the whole thing. <laughs> well, and that it also just goes to show too, like you know what, building a snow moon door is not as easy as one thinks. No, everyone thinks it's gonna be easy. You might as well be putting a moon door in Winterfell. You know what I'm saying? So she does some great work. There's a lot of emotion in that scene. Is the emotion of like total innocence and nostalgia. Followed by like, you know, like kid squabble. Yeah. And Followed by horny old man oh, making yeah. an advance, right? Yeah. Followed by the 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 camera panning up to Lysa overseeing the infidelity of her new husband. But of course, she's going to blame Sansa because why wouldn't you, right? Right. Well, also, you know, this show gets a lot of like, you know, I mean, you know, rap for being, you know, like, oh, it's real sexual or incestuous and everything. It's like, don't sleep on how much they like to slap kids in this show. <laughs> it's a lot, I mean, it's a lot these, of kids show, These showrunners, they're going to leave a mark. So a uh, little bit of sex position there with uh, Melisandre. Right. I, I kind of wish that they didn't do that. 
because I think I missed what she was saying probably the first couple times I watched it. Mm. I was a little distracted. Sure. But she's actually saying something that's really intriguing to me. Because her character, up until now, she's kind of come off as a super true believer, right? Yeah. And she's got good reason to be a true believer because she could push like a smoke baby out of her vagina. At will, almost. So she can do that. So she's seen some real things, right? I mean, she sees a vision in the fire. She's clearly a true believer. But in this scene, what she reveals is yeah, a lot of these are tricks. Like she's kind of like, there's just a tiny little bit of charlatan in there. Right? Yeah. She's like, yeah, you know what I'll do is I'm going to trick people into thinking that they've experienced the divine. They've had some kind of epiphany. They'll get converted, and then they'll realize later on that maybe it was a trick, but now they're in. And that's I think that's the most that they've ever revealed about her, the, the motives that, under, that are underneath the surface. Right. I found that kind of fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it definitely was um, something that I kind of, I didn't. I guess I didn't expect it like then, necessarily, and in that with that audience. And interesting that he he does it with, um, uh, you know, Stannis's wife, Salise. Salise, who is a who is an all in believer, right? She's, like, yeah, she's the epitome of sort of the you know total. She's whole hog in. Yeah. So why why reveal that to her, right? Or is it like? I could probably reveal that to this person because she'll probably dismiss it because she's that much into it. And I can kind of get a little bit off my chest a little bit. So I like that. I mean, clearly I think that that scene ends with them gazing into the fire. Yeah. And in some way revealing that for some reason, the daughter's got to go North and that's sort of that looms on the story for sure. All right. So let's talk about Tyrion again. So we get Tyrion's motives. He just doesn't want his father to win. Right. He's willing to sacrifice his own life if it means that Tywin just he just wants to see the look of loss on Tywin's face one time. Right. That would be totally Especially worth coming it. from him, right? I mean, because he knows that this whole thing is just sort of you know, even when he's you know, we've talked about this before, even when uh Tywin appears to be giving Tyrion his just due or credit, it still feels like it's a manipulation, right? And the father's using his fatherly stature to, to sort of get that out of him. This is the, like, it's the battle within the battle kind of a thing. And yet, he kind of realizes that he was a little bit impetuous in the moment. And in reality, he doesn't really want to die. Well, well, you can still make the right, do the right thing and not want it to have been the right thing. Like, and ultimately, like, that may have been, like, his best play, but it still sucks. It sucks, and he's he's still wondering. It's like he's he's given up the game, right? But there's still, like, a couple minutes of play left, and he's just kind of wondering, like, I, I might have a Hail Mary here. If I, if, if, you know, maybe someone could beat the mountain. Right. Uh, but then he finds out that Jamie can't fight anymore. Who's hotter, Dario or Danny? I like Goofy Dario. I know that you don't like the new Dario as much, but I'm saying, if you're just going to take like those two together. <laughs> I 
Dario or Danny? Who's hotter? Eh, it might be Dario. I'm gonna say Dario too. Yeah. There's something about it's 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 delivery matters, I think, too. I mean, I'm pretty well established as a heterosexual male, but I'm telling yeah, you. Don't give yourself too much credit. I'm telling you, I was that scene I was like, Yeah, he's pretty hot. Yeah, no, I was like, I'm I'm like <laughs> I'd have a hard time uh, focusing on ruling if presented with that. Mm. All right, so Steve Oberon, he wants justice. You sure do. And we've all seen the uh, the man, not the Manchurian, <laughs> the Mandalorian candidate. <laughs> we've all seen the Mandalorian candidate, right? <laughs> so you're kind of revisiting Oberyn Martell, knowing that uh, you're you're going to see him sort of become an iconic Star Wars character. Right. Like, almost overnight. I mean, he, a lot of success. A lot of Mandalorian, a lot of success. Speaking of hot takes. So, <laughs> yeah. How did that affect your viewing of this scene? It's an interesting one, right? Because it's like, it, because I, it, like, so if, when you look at, like, iconic Star Wars actors, a lot of it has to do with the original trilogy, right? I don't think a lot of people are necessarily, maybe, I think maybe... I think maybe Daisy Ridley and Adam Driver have have sort of taken that mantle with the new trilogy, but like the previous trilogy, you already you already kind of knew Owen McGregor, so it's not like you're like, oh, that's our Obi Wan, he'll always be my Obi Wan kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Same thing for Liam Neeson, and you know, and it's certainly Jar Jar, yeah, Jar Jar, and you know, Hayden Christensen is like, you know, in the witness protection program, so who knows what he's doing? But um, with this, you know, it's like, okay, this is before he was that, right? So looking back through that lens, um, you know, he's got the advantage of not being, it's like, oh yeah, that's a Mandalorian. But this is like the before they were stars type thing, it feels like. So I'll be honest, I was watching this, I was thinking, this is better. This is better than anything he's done in the Mandalorian. And maybe it's because he's just wearing the helmet the whole time in the Mandalorian or whatever. But I just feel like this guy is an amazing actor. But like Eastwood, early Eastwood especially, was sort of a, you know, especially in the spaghetti westerns, he was this presence, but he wasn't bringing a whole lot to the table acting-wise or dialogue-wise. So to some degree, that's kind of what he's being asked to do as the Mandalorian. Um, but famously, Eastwood's doing a lot of work with his eyes and eyebrows and, like, his grimace, the grimace right, on his right. face is, like, iconic grimace. You don't even get that with... You know, no. So yeah, that's a, yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting, right? So then the question is, is like, you you could have had anybody do this, right? I guess what I'm saying is that I really love seeing Oberyn Martell. I think he was doing a great job with this scene, and I guess I was watching this scene thinking, I love the Mandalorian. I don't, I don't get nearly as much of Pedro Pascal. So your appreciation... I, get, I, get, I guess what I'm saying is I feel like I get more Pedro Pascal in this one scene with Tyrion than, you do the than I do series. with 10 episodes. Yeah, and I think that that's... Man. So that's interesting, right? So you you get a, you actually appreciate him more now yeah. doing doing yeah. a part that isn't as big as the one that he's like now most known. Well, and I guess that that's a testimony to Game of Thrones overall because like even the guy that... The guy that gets kind of killed by the hound right and he has like you know like three minutes of screen time but he's doing amazing work right like that actor is amazing so i guess the question so with game of thrones it's like even if a guy who's he's only going to be on the screen for three minutes they normally find a really really decent actor to pull that weight 
Uh, best guess what's going to happen with Tyrion. Well, he's got himself a champion. He's got himself a champion. And this is where you just try to start reading the, the trope tea leaves. And mm-hmm. we'll be honest that Game of Thrones is a pretty good job of, of, of setting up expectations just to knock them down. I think he's already, we've already seen that in the last couple episodes. Right. So I think the inclination is if I follow sort of like trope logic, like, Whoa, this is this is going to be a big plot twist, right? Like he's going to Well, be... and it's also positioned as at episode 7, right? Right. So here's here's something where it's like okay, if Oberyn Oberyn can really shift uh some of the balance of power, right? If he ends up if I mean him defeating the mountain would be sort of this cataclysmic story shift which seems like that kind of is how game of thrones operates right well and on top of that you know tywin has really no rival right right so so but oberon oberon wants tywin that's that he ultimately wants he wants to take down the mountain and he ultimately wants to take down tywin so the only person that can even come close to being a rival to tywin is Oberyn right? So if you're if you're looking at it from a what could be making sense within the world that we've already seen um, and trying to project forward, uh, it would make sense that Tyrion lives. I don't see Tyrion. It, it would be, but again, this is what the show can do. But like, it does seem weird that Tyrion would die, kind of Ned like, right? Because it kind of that would feel like kind of been there, done that. But there might also be something to be said for, well, if he dies like Ned dies, it kind of keeps, it, it actually is pretty consistent with the world that, that's been built, right? And and here's the guy that you love and, and you think is going to be something bigger. And then there's like, nope, didn't work out for you. And on top of this, so, all right, so Tyrion's life is hanging in the balance. Oberyn's life is hanging in the balance. The mountain's life, and by sort of proxy, the hound's life, right? Because those two seem like they're on a collision course. But also, Jamie's life. Because if everything goes... I mean, basically, what Tywin wanted is to send Tyrion to the wall and send uh, Jamie to Casterly Rock. So, I guess Jamie's free of that obligation? I don't know. Right. But it seems like there's a lot hinging on this particular trial. Yeah, and and but and that's the thing about it, right? It's because we've like I said we've already seen a twist. We've seen a twist that sort of changed with, between with Shay's testimony that mm. threw a wrench into maybe what we thought was going to happen and and so that's the show does a really good job of this, right? So so the fact that I kind of feel like, oh, wow, Oberyn's going to come in and really upset things also gives me a moment where I'm like, where is he? I mean, the mountains, are, it starts with the mountain being pretty incredible, right? So I am very curious because for him to be, Oberyn's got to be a pretty pretty great. I think that that's sort of baked into this. So I, it's obviously, a, it would appear to be a physical mis- mismatch, but at the same time, it's like, well, I mean, the way that it was shifted, the way that, you know, Tyrion all of a sudden has that glimmer of hope, like, oh, crap, I got Oberyn on my side. It's like, well, right, maybe this is something. Well, it was nice to see. Okay, so to set up that scene, it was actually really nice to have Braun come in, right? So Braun comes in and basically says, I might be able to beat him. I mean, you could dance around and maybe get him off his feet. I mean, that it's possible. 
but this guy's really formidable. He's he's so formidable that Braun, you know, Braun's pretty formidable, right? Yeah, and he's pretty confident. Pretty confident, pretty formidable, and we basically we've seen him say, "Nope, I'd I'd rather not." That guy's a uh, that guy's a monster. So, and on top of that, it does kind of seem like it's kind of a nice little story arc for Braun. It's like he he found himself in a nice new set of clothes. He's got a nice new bride that he's going to go hook up with. So that scene with Braun does a lot of work because it really does seem like, yep, this is this is how it ends. Yeah, it really does feel like this is how it ends for Tyrion and Braun when they say goodbye. It's like I really felt like they're saying goodbye for good, and it also kind of foreshadows how horribly monstrous the 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 mountain really is yeah what's your uh what's your relationship with the world's strongest man competition um i remember magnus for magnuson everyone does i mean clearly he was he was the most memorable world's strongest man well it's all about branding too if his name was like magnus you know richardson no <laughs> we're not remembering R- that. R- richard ver richardson <laughs> richard ver richardson <laughs> <laughs> this particular mountain, which is not the previous actor who played the mountain, is a guy named Hafthor Bjornsson. I like that. And it takes more than one man to be a mountain, I think is what it, what the lesson you learn on this. Well, this guy's only half a Thor. <laughs> but he's a whole mountain. <laughs> so anyway, Hafthor Bjornsson, uh, he's the only person to have won the world's strongest man competition in the same year that he won the Arnold Strongman Classic, 2018. Well, he's got himself a little bit of a dynasty, or as or as Tywin would say, dynasty. Dynasty, yeah. So they got a, they basically got a, themselves a real mountain. It's a big get. And <laughs> anyway, I was. Uh, I'm not a big fan of this guy as an actor, but it is kind of cool to see. It's like he's a real life mountain. (laughs) All right. Got some hot pie. Hot pie's back. Hot pie's back and not a great liar. No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's got like that. The beauty of it is, is that we realize that if you were stuck in a in an elevator with Sir Davos and Hot Pie, good lord, <laughs> good luck. Do you think Davos could talk Hot Pie out of baking pie? Because <laughs> I mean, he can like, talk almost anyone into anything. And he's just out there, just talking about that. And he's like, just you know, well, here's the thing about gravy. I'm not a woman, man. But I'm like, okay, man, what do you know about gravy? I'm Hot Pie. It's my name. Good, good Davos. I'm not going to sit here and tell you how to try to use chopsticks with little stubby fingers. You don't tell me how to make pie. <laughs> could Davos, on his best day, could Davos get hot pie to give up on the gravy? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's got a silver tongue, that Davos. Yeah, that, that would be a real test. <laughs> he's just over there just, just eating See, the gravy on his own. See, that's the trial by combat that we we've been waiting for. That's exactly. That's what I want. <laughs> it's just it's like a debate team. All right, so the hound gets bitten. Yeah. 
I think that the guy's name that bit the hound is actually, his name is actually Biter. (laughs) Because early on, Arya meets these two guys and their name is Arorge and Biter. (laughs) And I didn't really get a good look on the guy that, you know, the guy's face. His neck snapped him. But I think that that was Biter. I think he got bit by Biter. It would be weird if it wasn't. It's like, like they, they went out of the way to name this guy Biter, and then for some reason, they didn't Biter. use him in that scene. They're like, well, the way we did the story, uh, Biter is actually out looking for firewood. Um, and so another guy bites on his behalf, and that's why he wasn't as successful. But, oh, baby, if Biter had been the one to bite... <laughs> Since the dawn of time, we've been putting clothes on our back that identify us with our people, our group, our tribe. And why Bald Move might be one of the smallest, weirdest tribes out there, transcending all concepts of border, class, culture, and creed, we still have respect for the old ways. At support.baldmove.com, you can get t-shirts, hats, mugs, and more. We have something for every one of our podcasts, or just wear the four pips of the Bald Move logo with pride. Bald Move merch beats running around naked. And they make a great gift for the Bald Move fan in your life. Join our tribe. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click on merch to start shopping. Commission podcasts are an awesome feature here at Bald Move that allows you, the individual listener, to decide what we talk about for a single podcast. The community loves it because it often leads to fun fan favorite films and TV shows that we've overlooked getting the coverage they deserve. And we love it because we're constantly exposed to great stuff that's not even on our radar. The way it works is simple. You go to support.baldmove.com and you click on commissions. Then you pay the flat rate for the commission and tell us what two-ish hours of content you'd like us to make podcasts on. Then we'll contact you for details, advanced feedback, and any dedications you'd like to make. Then we watch the thing, discuss the thing, turn it into a podcast, and pump it right into your ears. We get consistently great feedback on how much our commissioners love their podcast, and they make great gifts for the dedicated Bald Move fan in your life. And who knows, that dedicated fan could even be you. Treat yourself. Check out support.baldmove.com for more info. We try to make it super easy to support making podcasts at Bald Move. Just join the club. But some people aren't a joining type, or maybe they're already in the club but want to add a little bit of gratuity for an especially great season of coverage, or for a podcast that really spoke to them, or gave them that bit of support in a tough time. For these, and for whatever other reason you might have, our tip jar is always open. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click the donate option to say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. Once again, check out support.baldmove.com for all the great ways to help me and Jim keep making the podcast you love. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to include a short excerpt of my conversation with Oxford medievalist Caroline Larrington. In this conversation, Caroline tells us a little bit about the inspiration for The Moon Door at the Erie. 
And one of the interesting things that I've been researching recently is where Martin got the idea for the moon door and for the sky cells. Oh, you know, tell me. Kind of a, he gets it from the, the French writer Maurice Drouin, whose series of books, The Accursed Kings in English, Les Rois Maudits, uh, Martin is a huge fan of. Mm. And he endorses them. They were all reprinted in uh, about the English translations are all reprinted in about 2013. And if you read those books, it's the, the story of 14th century French history, but obviously that takes in some English history as well. And in Drouin's account, when poor Edward II is imprisoned in Berkeley Castle, where he eventually meets his death, the floor of the cell that he's kept in slopes down towards this kind of open drain almost. And so it's not like having an open wall that you could you can kind of slide off and outwards. But the idea is that um, this well in the middle of the cell has dead animals in it. There's a kind of miasma coming up, which they hope is, is going to kill the king. Oh in such a way that nobody can be accused of murdering him. Oh, and he's he's in a kind of paranoid state anyway. And the fact that the floor slopes down towards this well makes him really jumpy and nervous all the time. So it's not like he's kind of scrabbling like like Tyrion is going to have to. Um, but nevertheless, it's it's you can see how Martin takes that little detail from right. a historical novel and kind of amps it up into the both the moon door and the sky cells. Yes. It's, it's a fascinating uh, point of identification. Yeah, that's interesting. That's that's fascinating parallel. And if the only way out is down, sort of representing death down there, you can kind of see how Martin gets that idea. Yeah, and you can see how, well, when we get to the chapter where the moon door is going to be revealed, you're going to start wondering who's going to be going through that moon door <laughs> before right. before we get out of the eerie. Yeah, all right. Hey, I, man, I always learn so much talking with you. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Not at all. It's been great. I look forward to our next meeting. My thanks, as always, to Caroline. Just a reminder, she's got not one but two books out on Game of Thrones. You can, of course, find that on Amazon by searching her name, Caroline Larrington. But perhaps a better path is to search for her name on the publisher's website. That's Bloomsbury.com. And that's all for this week.